This podcast is a production of Restoring the Core, an initiative designed to assist those looking to explore classic Christianity with Connected Age resources online at restoringthecore.com. This is Finding Hidden Treasure, episode 95. This episode is on the hidden treasure of catechisms. Quite often, when you ask a Christian what they believe, they may respond with, I believe what the Bible says. That is a good thing. However, if the person doing the inquiry were to take the time to read the content of the Bible to determine the extent of that belief, it would take about 72 hours at a normal speaking speed to take in the content of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. That would be quite a long answer to a short question. The people of God recognized this limitation early on. It would not even be simply a matter of reading all the content of the Bible. One would also need the ability to properly interpret what is being read. What believers have done from the very beginning of church history has been to create summaries of the foundational truths of the faith. You can find an example of this in the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 34. To supply some context, the Pharisees were looking to challenge Jesus with a difficult question. Starting in verse 36, we find them asking, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? The Lord Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It has been estimated that there are 613 distinct laws found within the Old Testament. Keep in mind that the phrase, the law and the prophets, as used in the first century when Jesus spoke these words, would encapsulate what today we call the Old Testament. In two simple statements, the Lord Jesus was able to summarize not just the regulations, but the extent of the written scripture of that time, from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi. The essence of those 39 books of the Old Testament, which would take about 54 hours to read at speaking speed, was summarized by the Lord Jesus in two verses, recitable in a matter of moments. Such summaries do not remove the need for scripture. Instead, they act as a kind of magnifying lens for us to see the core and the essence of what the scripture says. In following the lead of the Lord Jesus, the early church developed what would be called rules of faith. These rules of faith are compact summaries of the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as well as the message of the Gospel. They were used in the very early centuries of the Church, particularly at baptisms, where new Christians would profess their faith with these compact summaries. These rules of faith would eventually develop into statements known as creeds. The word creed comes from the Latin for, I believe. While they are expansions on the rules of faith, they are still compact summaries which found their way into the weekly services of the church. Perhaps the two best-known creeds are the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed was written in the year 325 and revised at the Council of Constantinople in the year 381. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the Apostles, but is named after them because the Creed contains the essence of what the Apostles taught. After the start of the Reformation, usually dated to the year 1517, such summaries of the faith took on new life. The goal of the Reformers was not to create a new religion, but to return to the early faith and practice of the Church in the areas where it had departed over the course of centuries. In the era of the Reformation, these summaries took on new and renewed forms. The various expressions of the faith of the Reformation, found in England and also on the continent of Europe, developed what are called confessions of the faith. 
in current times, when we hear the word confession, we usually think of somebody admitting to doing something wrong. While that can be one definition for confession, the classic definition used by the church is that a confession of faith is really a profession of faith. In other words, it is stating once again in summary form the important foundational truths of the faith as understood by the group or individual writing that confession. In the Lutheran stream of the Reformation, a confession of faith can be found in the Book of Concord. In the Swiss Reformation, their confession of faith is found in the First and Second Helvetic Confessions. In the Dutch Reformation, their summary is found in the Belgic Confession. In the English Reformation of the mid-17th century, that summary is found in the Westminster Confession. It was usually the case that a catechism would be developed along with the confession of faith. Catechisms were not new to the era of the Reformation. In fact, some of the earliest usage of a catechism happened outside of church history, with the followers of the Greco-Roman god Mithras using catechisms as summaries of what they believed in that era just before the birth of Christ. Knowing this, the question might arise that with such a history, should Christians use catechisms at all? I think we need to keep in mind the distinction between the content of teaching and a method for teaching. Stated another way, I think it is clear that a non-Christian memorizing certain data about their beliefs does not invalidate a Christian memorizing certain data about our beliefs. Memorization as a technique is not at issue. The content is. The standard format of a catechism is any teaching tool in which a question is asked and an answer is supplied. While in printed or in digital format today, the very earliest use of catechisms may have simply been through oral teaching. This could be inferred from the Greek word katecheo, which means to teach orally. Here's why I think it's important for Christians in our time to rediscover the importance and usefulness of historical Christian catechisms of the faith. We live in an era in the West which is characterized by a high degree of biblical illiteracy. It should be noted that only a few generations ago, there were individuals who might not be followers of Christ, but understood that they needed some level of the knowledge of the Bible and of the Christian faith to make sense of the culture around them. For example, many of the plays of William Shakespeare, written in 17th century England, would be rather difficult if not impossible to understand without a knowledge of the Christian faith and Christian-influenced culture in which they were written. Without going into what could be tedious demographic details, in the West, the case can be made that not only does the general population lack a basic understanding of what Christianity is, but those who make a profession of faith in Christ have a similar lack of the knowledge of their own faith. The use of the catechism can have the dual purpose of informing a Christian mind and training a Christian mind. In terms of informing a Christian mind, a catechism can present the foundational beliefs of the faith in a quick yet thorough manner. They also can train us to think Christianly by giving us insight into not only what we believe, but how we believe it. Let me give two examples. The first example is from what may be the best known catechetical question and answer in Western society today, namely, the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Question one asks, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That question and answer can be easily memorized and done so very quickly. However, both the question and the answer are extremely profound. Think about it. I suspect that just about every human being with even a minimum of life experience at some point asks themselves about the question of their purpose. 
the question of why we are here on earth will receive a range of answers among the world's religions and philosophies of today. Are we simply a collection of atoms that have somehow arranged themselves to be self-aware and tragically to know that this time of self-awareness is very limited and ultimately meaningless as we return to simply being a collection of unarranged, unaware atoms? Are we a consciousness that will eventually have its personality erased and merged with others to return into a single consciousness? Those are only two among the answers to that question outside of the Christian faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in its question-and-answer format, provides the biblically-centered hope of every believer in Christ. From the answer, we infer that our lives have purpose. We know from the scriptures that everything we do, from what may seem to us to be the most important and profound acts of life, right down to the most common and mundane activities of eating and drinking, must all be done for the glory of God. In this regard, see 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. The second part of the answer, I think, is just as profound. The God who created all things desires relationship with us. We are told in Psalm 16, verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy, in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In Psalm 27 verse 4, we find David asking God for one thing. Actually, it is one thing with three components. David asked, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The word used for beauty can also be translated more literally as delightfulness. I realize that even for many who are in Christ, the idea that we should enjoy God and our relationship with Him may seem a strange concept. However, from what we've seen in Scripture, that should not be the case. Think about this. Think about something in this world that brings you delight. Please understand I'm not talking about something sinful. There are many things in this world that can bring us delight that are good things. It could be a good meal. It could be a good relationship with friends. It could be the life of a husband and wife shared with each other. It could be reading, playing a video game, travel. In essence, it could be any number of things. Would it be possible for the God who created all things and has set the course and direction of human history to have allowed anything in this world to be more delightful and enjoyable than him? I think the brief and profound answer that the members of the Westminster Assembly wrote for this question and answer in the 1640s shows their depth of relationship with the most delightful one, God himself, as well as the deep knowledge of his word. I mentioned earlier about a second example I'd like to use. That would be the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism of the year 1563. Question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's reflect on this together. Just as the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the same profound question that all humans ask of their lives, the Heidelberg does the same but takes it in a different direction. Ask yourself, what is your only comfort in life and in death? 
Perhaps you have something which comforts you in this life, but you cannot conceive of it or anything else that would comfort you at the time of your death. Notice how the Heidelberg answers the question. The answer is not as compact as Westminster, but what it says is no less true and is no less profound. Several decades ago, it was not uncommon for me to see cars on the streets of Detroit with a bumper sticker which read, Christ is the answer. A number of people responded to that bumper sticker by asking, what's the question? What we see here in the first answer in the Heidelberg Catechism is that Christ is the answer for what we seek as comfort in this life and in the next. His being our only comfort in life and in death. This answer is a wonderful summary of the work of Christ on the behalf of his people. A very helpful feature of many of these catechisms is that they provide cross-references to passages from Scripture concerning the points they make. While there may be some who disagree with the answers given in these catechisms, it is clear that those who composed these works were looking to center them on Scripture and not merely on their own opinions. I highly recommend the reading of some of the classic catechisms of the Christian faith. I will have links to the Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster's Shorter and Longer Catechisms, as well as Luther's Short and Long Catechisms. They provide wonderful content in well-crafted summaries of the faith. They give us something of a picture of what was important to our Christian ancestors in those first few generations after the Reformation had begun. I'd like to encourage you to read and think through them. What you learn and reflect on in these catechisms will make a difference in your life with Christ. They will allow you to develop the mindset in which, as has been said by a wise Christian long ago, that you will have one eye on earth and one eye on heaven. I pray that these catechisms will bolster your knowledge of the faith and deepen your trust in God through Christ. Thank you for listening to this program. We can be contacted at mail at restoringthecore.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash restoringthecore. You can also follow us on Twitter at RestoreTheCore. My original blog is still active. It is found at schoolofthesolitaryplace.blogspot.com. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time for Finding Hidden Treasure.